a Wednesday night or a Tuesday night or whatever it is, and if you want to come out, you can come out for a Bible study. Now, we've learned thus far about Joseph that he is a good man. He's a man who is a believer. He is a man who trusts his God, and he's been done wrong on every account. He's suffered wrong at the hands of his brothers. He suffered wrong at the hand of Potiphar. He suffered wrong at the hands of Potiphar's wife, and now he's in prison. He's suffering in prison. And I told you there are two reasons for it. One is he's in prison for doing right. And secondly, and most importantly, and this is very important, I say this all the time, but I don't think we get it. There's a secret reason why he's in prison. The obvious reason he's in prison is because of all of these people, from his brothers to Potiphar's wife. But the secret reason he is in prison is the sovereign purpose and the decree of God. It had been determined in the high courts of heaven that Joseph is going to be moved to a position of supreme power in Egypt. And prison is the path that the Lord has chosen for him. So the question we are considering now is simple and direct. Why do the children of God suffer? Why do we have trouble? Why do we have trial? Why do we have problems? I'm going to list for you quickly about 10 or 12 things that I've already brought up to you, and I'm just going to mention them again, and probably next week I'll have them printed out on a list if you want them to look them up. I don't say that this is a complete list because there are some secret things that belong to the Lord. Deuteronomy chapter 29, verse 29 says, The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but those things that are revealed belong to us and to our children that we may obey the Lord. So here are some reasons why God's people, biblical reasons, why some of the people of God have had trouble and trial and suffering. Number one, to demonstrate the power of God. The list that I give you will have the passages. This happens to be 2 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians chapter 12. To demonstrate the power of God. Number two, to produce humility and humbleness. Sometimes we suffer. Sometimes the people of God, some of the people of God have suffered to manifest the fruits of the Spirit. Uh, when, do you, when do we need to show patience and kindness and love? It's when we're under trial. And number four, uh, to help others who suffer. Sometimes we suffer in order to help others to suffer. Not only empathize and sympathize, but actually physically help them remembering ourselves when we were down and others reached out to us. For discipline, the Lord chastens those whom he loves. More, mo most of us have experienced trouble because of discipline. The Lord loves us, and he's going to give us some trouble to horn us down, to cut away everything that's not like Christ. You remember the old saying, the old story that I told you about the fellow that said Satan came to him and was swinging an axe to cut his head off? But he said, when he swings the axe at me, he said, God regulates the blow and he cuts away everything that doesn't look like Christ. And so he says, Satan is made to sweat at the task of conforming me to the image of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's exactly the truth in the scripture. Sometimes people have suffered to demonstrate true and saving faith. Look at Job. Look at all he went through, and yet he kept trusting 
the Lord as he walked along. And sometimes people have suffered trouble to illustrate divine truth, like Hosea. Go marry a woman that's unfaithful. And he says, this pictures the Lord and the children of Israel. Sometimes people have suffered to learn obedience. Hebrews 5, 8, Philippians 2, verses 5 through 8. Sometimes people have suffered trial and trouble to prove their faith. Sometimes to show the sufficiency of grace. Sometimes people have suffered simply because they're Christians for confessing the, the gospel. And sometimes they have suffered, as Paul says in 2 Timothy 2, verses 9 through 10, for the elect's sake. For the elect's sake. So those are 12 reasons why sometimes people of God get into trial and trouble and suffering. Now, here are a couple of biblical facts regarding trial and trouble and suffering. By the way, there are over 350 references in the Bible to trial, to trouble, and to suffering. Here are a couple of things I want you to remember. Number one, all the trials and all the troubles and all the suffering began when Adam, the first man, disobeyed the Lord. Every kind of trial you have, all the trouble you have is somehow related to the fall of man in the Garden of Eden. Everything that I say every Sunday can be reduced to two heads, to two questions. What happened in the Garden and what happened at the cross? Those two things determine everything that we teach everything that you believe, everything that the Bible encompasses. So all of the trials and troubles, you agree with me, I hope, that if Adam had not sinned, if man had not fallen, we wouldn't have any trials and troubles and suffering. Number two, both the redeemed and those who are not redeemed experience trial and trouble and suffering, but they experience them for different reasons. Jacob, who is the father of the nation of Israel, you remember his name was changed from Jacob to Israel, he lived a lifetime of trouble. And he testified of it before Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. He said, my days have been few and my life has been filled with trouble. Genesis 47 and verse 9. Job was a believer. He was a God-fearing man, but he lost everything he had, including his children. And yet his sufferings did not come because of disobedience or failure to worship the Lord and serve the Lord, but came because of a challenge by Lucifer, the one we call Satan, up in heaven. In other words, here's what happened with Job. The Lord was glorified at Job's expense. He didn't know anything about what was going on in heaven. David, the greatest king Israel ever had, the writer of the Psalms, which praised the Lord for his great mercies. David has trial, he had trouble, he had suffering nearly all the days of his life. Moses, by whom the Lord liberated Israel and gave the law, and with whom God spoke face to face, he suffered trial and trouble over an 80-year period. And then he was prohibited from entering into the promised land. The apostles of the Lord Jesus Christ, whom he handpicked, 
and he endowed with power to preach and to heal, they all suffered tremendous trial and tremendous trouble and suffering, with the exception of John, who wrote the Gospel of John, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, and the book of Revelation, with the exception of John, all of the apostles died violent deaths. And when John introduces himself in the book of Revelation, chapter 1, verse 9, he says, I am your brother, I am your companion in tribulation and in the kingdom and patience of Jesus Christ. So my friends, listen, no one is exempt from trial, from trouble, and from suffering if you are a human being. Even if you're redeemed by the blood of the Lamb, you're going to have trial and trouble and suffering in this world. Here's the question. Is there a difference between the trials and the troubles and the sufferings of the redeemed children of God and those who are not redeemed? And the answer is a resounding yes. All trial, now you must keep this in mind. I'm going to say it over and over and over again. All trial, all trouble, and all suffering experienced by God's redeemed children is by design. By design. Now, I'm going to give you, uh, get you get a little ahead of me. If you want to go over and turn to 1 Peter, 1 Peter in the New Testament, chapter 1. All of the trials that the children of God suffer is by design. Every trial is by design. Now, what does this mean? It means this. Although the Lord himself may not cause the trouble, he uses it. He may not cause the trouble. He, he didn't cause the trouble for Job. It was the devil who said, why does Job serve you? He serves you because you bless everything he does. He said, just take away some of his blessings. Let me take away some of his blessings, and he'll curse you to your face. His, his serving you is conditioned upon your blessings. And so the Lord said, all right. And he smote his, uh, took his children, took his crops, took his animals. Then he said again, uh, well, now, have you considered my servant Job? Oh, yeah, I've considered him, but skin for skin, all that a man has, you give for his life. Uh, I was a little wrong about Job concerning the things. He's still serving you, but I tell you what, you make him think he's going to die, and he'll curse you to your face. And the Lord said, all right, you got him, but you can't take his life. You notice that the devil was prohibited by the Lord he told him how far he could go. The, the devil is not a god. He's the god of this world. The whole world lies in the lap of the wicked one. But above him is the sovereign god. And the sovereign god is going to make things come out. And he's going to use the wickedness of the devil and the wickedness of men for the good of his people and for the glory of his name. Joseph is not in jail because of wickedness that he has done. Job did not suffer trial because of his own personal disobedience. Paul was not given a thorn in the flesh because of something he had done. But it was all for the glory of God, and the Lord used it by design to further his purpose and for the good of his people. 
Now, when you have time, you can just mark this passage down. It's Genesis chapter 45, verses uh, 4 through 8. After Joseph's dad was dead and he had revealed himself to his brothers, he called his brothers to him in Genesis 45, and he says, Come near to me. And they came near, and he said, I'm Joseph, your brother, whom you sold into Egypt. Now listen to what he says now. Don't be grieved. Don't be angry with yourselves that you sold me. For God did send me before you to preserve life. For these two years has the famine been in the land, and there are five years left. Listen to this now. And God sent me before you to preserve you a posterity in the earth and to save your lives by great deliverance. Listen to this last statement. He's really emphasizing this. So now it was not you that sent me here, but it was God. And he has made me a father to Pharaoh, and he has made me lord of all his house and a ruler throughout all the land of Egypt. What a statement by Joseph. Genesis 45, 4 through 8. Now listen to me, believer. If you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, if you're a believer in him, if you're trusting him as you walk along, Everything that happens in your life is by design. And there are some reasons why the Lord lets you and me go through what we go through. There are some obvious reasons and some other reasons, and we're going to deal with those. But I can't say enough. All of the troubles, all of the trials, all of the sufferings of Joseph were overridden by the Lord that he served and made to work for his good. And the same wonderful truth applies to every single blood-bought child of God through faith in Jesus Christ. Listen to me. In spite of the wickedness, in spite of the lies, in spite of the plots of men and devils, the Lord works his will for our good and for his glory. Joseph was moved along by the invisible, sovereign hand of God from one trial to another. And I think he knew that, and we should know this too. Now, I'm not talking about Trying to change God's will. I'm going to talk to you about that next Sunday, but it won't be related to Joseph. You can't change the will of God. I'm talking about our ability to be able to go through trials, through trouble, in a triumphant manner. To have the victory regardless of the circumstances. I'm talking about that kind of Faith, no matter what comes your way, if you will go to the Word of God, if you will stand on the Word of God by faith, you will know by the Spirit, who, by the way, is the author of the Word of God, right? You will know that whatever the trouble, whatever the trial, whatever the suffering, it will work for your good. 
And I hope you believe that. I hope you can say that no matter what kind of setbacks you've had, you might have had health setbacks, you might have had economic setbacks, you might have had setbacks in your family, you might have had problems because of this or that or the other. There may be things that happened to you you didn't want to happen. All of these things. I'm telling you, it'll all work for your good. You see, we're not here, we're not here to live in this world forever. We're here to be prepared for serving Him in eternity. That's why we're here. We're not here to live forever. We're not here in these bodies. We're here, if you lived a thousand years and you're a believer, you'd be ready to go and be with the Lord when He calls you. So here's what I'm saying to you. Don't panic. Trust the Lord. Don't go to pieces. Wait on the Lord. Don't say, why is this happening to me? But hide yourself in the Lord and stand upon His promises. Of course, this means that you have to know the promises. Here are two or three passages you ought to learn, memorize, and say it often to yourself. All things work together for good to those who love the Lord, to those who are the called according to His purpose. Romans chapter 8 and verse 28. Here's another one you can, you can quote. 1 Thessalonians 5.18. In everything give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. He didn't say that everything was good. He said in everything you ought to be able to thank the Lord. You ought to be able to thank the Lord in everything, no matter what happens, because it's going to be for His glory and for your good. Here's another one, 2 Corinthians 12, 9. His grace is sufficient for me, whatever the trial, because His strength is made perfect in my weakness. Did you realize that the weaker I am, the more I rely on Him? Do you realize that when I more and more and more see my own sinfulness, I see my great need for Him? Now, I'm going to share a little secret just between us girls. If you're a child of God, you're never going to outgrow the need for constant forgiveness and mercy and grace from the Lord Jesus Christ. You don't ever get to a place... Well, you're going to say, well, praise God, I don't think I've sinned today. I don't think I've done anything today. I think I'm, I think I'm arriving now. I think I'm growing. When you begin to believe that lie, you are headed for a fall, for pride comes before destruction and a hearty spirit before a fall. The normal experience of every sinner that's ever been saved, every child of God, the normal experience is that in me, that is in my flesh, that dwells no good thing. The normal experience is, when I was without strength, Christ died for the ungodly. The normal experience is, I see more of my sins today than I did 50-something, 60 years ago when the Lord saved me. I thought I was a sinner then. That ain't nothing compared to what I know about myself now. I need him more today than I've ever needed him. And so whenever we're trying to talk about some of the failures of others, remember your own failures. I'll tell you when, I'll tell you when you don't need to ask the Lord uh, for mercy 
and that's when you don't need any. And I don't know that there'll ever come a time this side of glory that you don't need the uh, mercy of the Lord. The Bible tells us that we are going to condemn ourselves by condemning others because we do the same thing. We always pick on people who don't have the problems we have. It's easy for me to pick on you about something when I don't have that problem. It's easy for you to pick on me about something that you wear and you don't have the problem. But here's the, here's the real picture. The real picture is we all have problems. Right? And if we all have problems, where is the best place for a person who has problems to be? Under the Word of God. So you're welcome to come here. I don't care what your problems are. I don't care where you've been. If you start studying the Scripture, you find that the people among the people of God are some pretty bad people. Moses was a murderer. The Apostle Paul helped murder Stephen the deacon. Many of the people in the Word of God did some pretty bad things and pretty awful things. But see, that's where we are. We need the mercy of God. We need His grace. We need His forgiveness. Now, there's a revelation given in God's Word which will carry us through every trial, and I'm going to begin to share it with you today. If I don't finish it, then I'll finish it, God willing, in a couple of weeks. The next week, I'm planning on preaching on something else, but we'll see what happens there. Here's the two things that I want you to hear. First, you must realize your security in Christ. If you, in fact, have truly trusted with your heart the Lord Jesus Christ, you have eternal security in Him. When the prodigal son left home, when he left the father, when he said, give me the goods that falls to me, and he went out and spent all he had with riotous living, the scripture says, right? Was he still the son of the father? He was still the son of the father. But, but, let's not always be so quick to put ourselves in his place. I told a man one time, he was talking about David, he said, look what David did. I said, yeah, we can all sin like David, but we don't all repent like David. We don't all come back to the Lord like David. We don't all come back and say, I acknowledge my transgressions and my iniquities are ever before me. In, in sin did my mother conceive me. We don't all come back with that. So my friends, listen, no matter what David did, no matter what Peter did, no matter what somebody else does that you know, you, you remember this, you need to press on with the Lord Jesus Christ. But if you know him, if you have trusted him, you are secure in him. Secondly, I want you to realize that you must believe and you must trust the word of God. And I may not get to this today, and this is really what I want to get to. You must trust the word of God above what you see, what you hear, what you feel, and what you can rationalize. We are now in a generation where feeling has become the guide to truth. You know, if it feels good. But I just feel like this, and I feel like that. It doesn't matter how I feel. What does God say in his word? All right, Second Peter 
Second Peter, I said Second Peter. First Peter, let's see. Chapter 1, 1 Peter chapter 1. Now I'm going to deal with this first point that I made, our security in Christ. He has given us sufficient information not only to endure whatever comes our way, but to triumph in it. Now notice to whom Peter is writing. He's writing to strangers, verse 1. These were people who were uh, probably Jewish descendants of those who had some 200 years before Christ been moved from Syria by Antiochus, the king of Syria, had been moved to Asia Minor. I can relate to that strangers because I was once a stranger to Christ. So he's writing to the strangers. Who are these strangers? Verse 2, they are elect. They are elect according to the foreknowledge of God. Their external condition, they are strangers. Their spiritual condition, they are elect. Notice what else he says. He says that they are sanctified. Sanctification through the sanctification of the Spirit unto obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. Grace be to you and peace be to multiply. So to whom is he talking about grace and peace? He's talking about those who are elect those who are sanctified, and those who are walking in obedience, and those who are under the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Elect means God is for you in a redemptive way. Sanctified means you've come to faith in Jesus Christ as Messiah. Obedience means you have obeyed the gospel. And when he mentions the blood here, this is not the blood of the atonement but this is the continual and daily cleansing of the atonement blood. Now verses 3 and 4. He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which according to His abundant mercy has begotten us again unto a lively hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance incorruptible, undefiled, that fades not away, reserved in heaven for you. Now listen, let me refresh your minds about what I'm saying. I'm talking to you about your security in the Lord Jesus Christ. If you are elect, God is for you. If God is for you, who can be against you? Things can be against you, but not within his success. So he says in verses 3 and 4, the verses I just read, that we enjoy the privileges of all the redeemed. We are begotten by the Spirit, or of the Spirit, by the Word. We were dead in trespasses and sins, and now we have a lively hope. We are alive from the dead. This hope is a living hope because we have a living God, and we have a resurrected living Christ, a mediator. Then he says, you have an inheritance to an inheritance, verse 4. This inheritance is salvation itself. Salvation is the object of our hope. Then he says a few things about this salvation. He says it's incorruptible. That is, it has no connection to death and decay. He says it's undefiled. That is, it's not stained by sin. He says it fades not away. It has the idea of like a flower that fades after a while. But he says this salvation that we have retains its beauty forever. Then he says it's reserved, last part of verse 4, it is reserved 
in heaven for you. That is, it is kept in a fixed, abiding state. It's secure. It's beyond all risk. Paul wrote to Timothy in 2 Timothy 4, 8, There's laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord the righteous judge shall give me at that day, and not to me only, but unto all them that also love his appearance. He says that this salvation we have, this hope that we have, this incorruptible, undefiled, fading not away, reserved in heaven, he says it's reserved in heaven. What that means is it's out of the reach of Satan. Satan can get to you and he can get to me, but he can't get to our inheritance. Then he says it's reserved in heaven, notice how particular he is, for you. That is for each of us in particular. No one else can receive it in our stead. That's what Jesus meant in John 14 when he said, I'm going to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I'm going to come again. And I'm going to receive you unto myself that where I am, there you may be also. Then he says to make sure that we inherit our uh, our inheritance. Look at verse 5. He said, you're kept by the power of God. You mean God who made the world, God who called things into existence, God who sustains all things today. You mean to tell me that he doesn't have enough power to keep you and to keep me? He says this salvation that we have is kept by the power of God. Kept by the power of God. Right there in the Bible. He's making sure that we inherit our inheritance. We ourselves are kept, and the word there means we are guarded. We are guarded. What good is an inheritance if the inheritor is not kept? Then he says, we are kept by the power of the sovereign, omnipotent God. All right, now watch the next line. We are kept by God, what? Through faith. Now, I personally believe that believers are kept in the faith. This is not an external keeping. This is an internal keeping. The power of God is in us. In us. He says through faith. We are kept through faith. We can't claim to be guarded under salvation if we're not walking by faith. If we're not walking by faith, we can't claim that we are guarded, that we're kept under salvation. The gospel is the power of God unto salvation to whom? To everyone that believes, Romans 1, 16. If I have believed, I now believe. If I now believe, and it's gospel faith, I will continue to believe. My friends, listen to me now. God doesn't love and lose. If he loves you, if he's called you, If you love him, it's because he loved you first. And if he's called you, he's going to keep you. When Jesus prayed in John chapter 17, he said, Father, I've kept them all. None of them is lost, but the son of perdition, that the scriptures might be fulfilled. Who's the son of perdition? Well, that's Judas. That's Judas Iscariot, that the scriptures might be fulfilled. So he says here that we are Kept by the power of God, we are kept through faith. The Lord will 
keep us by his power in the faith. He'll keep us moving on. We might move this way, we might move that way. The life of a believer is very much like the Mississippi River. Get you a map sometime, look at the Mississippi River. It goes like this, and then it goes like this, and it goes like this, and goes sometimes it goes backwards, and goes like this. But the, the proclivity of the Mississippi River is steadily going south toward the Gulf of Mexico. And that's the way we are. We might wander over here and wander over there, and sometimes look like we're going backwards, but we're going to end up going back in that direction because we belong to him. And when you get too far out there, that's one of the reasons some of us suffer. It's for chastening, chastisement. You don't think the Lord knows how to take you out of the woodshed and spank you? You just try it. He has spanked me a lot over my lifetime, and I'm thankful for it. The Lord chastens those whom he loves. So we are kept through faith, received by faith, kept through faith. And notice what he says here. He says, wherein you greatly rejoice... Verse 6, though now for a season, if need be, you are in heaviness through manifold temptations. He says, even though you are in trouble, your salvation is reserved, and you're able to rejoice in the Lord, the author of your faith, the author and finisher of your faith, even in spite of the trouble. And he says this salvation, let's go back to verse 5, is ready to be revealed in the last time. Now since Christ is our salvation, when Christ is revealed, so will our finished salvation be revealed. Our salvation is finished from the divine perspective, but from the human perspective, we must plod along day by day in perseverance, trusting the Lord, walking with the Lord, looking to the Lord. Christ began preparation for our salvation before the foundation of the world. He purchased it when he came into the world, and he finished it when he died on the cross before he left the world, and he will reveal it in its fullness when he comes back into the world. That is, in the last time. Now look at this verse 6. Here's how our faith should operate. Verse 6. Wherein you greatly rejoice, though now for a season, if need be, you're in heaviness through manifold temptation. This is how our faith should operate. We should rejoice in all things and look forward to our Lord Jesus Christ. We can rejoice because... Our eyes are not on ourselves, our eyes are not on our circumstances, our eyes are not on uh, what's happening, our eyes are on Him. Haven't you read in the book of Hebrews, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before Him despised the shame? So we keep our eyes on Him. We're looking always unto Him, even in the time of trouble. Even though we may be going through trial, we may be going through trouble, we may be suffering, listen, it's only for a season. It's only for a short time compared to eternity. Now, I don't know how many of you have King James Version. That's what I'm reading from. But let me read verse 6 again. Wherein you greatly rejoice, though now for a season, if need be, you are in heaviness 
through manifold temptations. If need be, simply means this, if it's God's will. (laughs) If it's God's will, it's by design, and he says, though you are now in heaviness, and this word heaviness is in passive, it's a passive, in the passive mood, passive tense, The the joy we have makes the heaviness that we now have seem like a thing of the past because we're rejoicing in him. And he says, you may have manifold, that's various trials, which will prove your faith. In 1 Peter 4, verses 12 and 13, Peter said to these people, don't think it's strange concerning the fiery trial, which is to try you as though some strange thing happened unto you, but rejoice inasmuch as you are partakers of the sufferings of Christ that when his glory shall be revealed, you may be glad also with exceeding joy. All right, now verse 7. Here's the aim of these temptations and trials. Verse 7. That the trial of your faith, being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it be tried with fire, might be found unto praise and honor and glory at the appearing of Christ. This is the aim of these temptations and trials. The trial of your faith. You know what he says? Your faith will be tried. Not to see if you have faith, but to show that you do. You know, when these engineers create a bridge, when they do a bridge, recently the bypass, Macatcha Bypass, going over to Highway 96 West, was recently opened. And they have a bridge there. And before people could get on that bridge, they had to have engineers come over and test the bridge. Now, they weren't testing the bridge to see if it would hold up. They were testing the bridge to prove that it would hold up. Okay, now why was our Lord Jesus Christ tempted of the devil? Only the devil had a question, if you are the Son of God, turn these stones into bread. Remember that? He had those temptations. He was led of the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil to prove that he was the Son of God, not to see if he was the Son of God. In the same way, the trial of your faith proves that you're children of God. It's not to see if you're a child child of God. It's to prove that you are. Not only can you not have any assurance, Lynn said earlier, she talked about looking back when David encouraged himself. The way David encouraged himself is he looked back through troubles and trials and sufferings he'd had, and he saw how the Lord had brought them, brought him through them. And so now the present trial that he's going through, he has a spirit of victory because he brought me through it, he can bring me through this. That's what, he's, that's what the Scripture is talking about. So the heaviness that we have now is passive because we're rejoicing in Him. The aim is, verse 7, is the trial of your faith. Again, it's not to see if you're saved. It's to prove that you are. And that's the only reason Jesus was tempted of the devil, to prove that He was the Son of, of, of God. It's significant that every single prophet, every single apostle, were all, they were all tested. All of them suffered trouble. 
All of them had temptation of some kind or another. And all of them proved themselves true. They were faithful unto death. Now, have you ever known anybody that has perfect faith? Of course not. We may not have perfect faith, but every believer has permanent faith. Every believer will continue in the faith. If a believer falls or strays or stumbles, the Scripture is clear. You which are spiritual, restore such a one. Don't condemn that person. Don't put them down. Well, I don't know how they did that. I don't know how they did that. Well, you may not do that, but you'll do this. I don't know how you do this. And you don't know how I do that. You see, my friends, we can all, we're all passing through the valley of the shadow of death. I believe this world is the valley of the shadow of death. We're all passing through it. And you know what we need from each other? We need some help. We need some encouragement. We don't need somebody coming over and saying, look, why did you do that? What's the matter with you? Aren't you a child of God? Well, yeah. Are you one? Well, yeah, I'm one. Well, then why aren't you encouraging me? Why don't you encourage me? Anybody can be critical. Anybody can. If you don't think I can, can't be critical, ask my wife. I criticize everybody that comes on television, talking back to the TV, calling people that make statements on their bad names. Idiots. Do that all the time. And I have to watch it because I'll carry that out the door with me. And then when I talk to you, I say, wonder what in the world's wrong with Brother Sasser today. <laughs> well, I had a bad day with the television. <laughs> My friends, we need, listen, all of us, we are different spiritual levels. We got different problems. You've got problems. I've got problems. We have a world of problems. We don't need to be condemning each other. We need to be helping each other. Is that not right? We need to be encouraging one another. That the trial of your faith, he says, the trial of your faith is going to be tried. Now, the trial of your faith, he says, is a most precious thing. Look at this, verse 7 that the trial of your faith being much more precious than gold that perishes, though that gold, as valuable as it is, is tried with fire, and that faith, which is even more precious, might be found unto the praise and the honor and the glory at the appearing of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now what he's saying is, if gold, which perishes, must be tried by fire to remove the impurities. How much more does our faith, which never perishes, need to be tried to remove what's defective? One thing about trial and trouble, sometimes and if I have a problem, then I learn how not to do it. Have you ever learned that? I won't go that way again. That's how you don't do it. I think it was Thomas Edison when they asked him after he had tried a thousand ways to create this light bulb. They said, well, what have you done? You've just failed a thousand times. He said, no, I've learned a thousand ways how it won't work. <laughs> All of us are pessimistic by nature. The guy that invented the, the steamboat, 
He put it out on the river. There was a big crowd. And there was one guy. He was a big critic, big critic and he was on the, on the, uh, the bank with all of these people. And he kept hauling out, never get it started, never get it started. He got it started, and it went all on and went down, and went back up against the stream. He said, you never stop it, you never get it stopped. Let's encourage one another. This is precious faith here. This is precious faith that the Lord has given to us. And he says this about it. Notice now. He says that our faith will be tried by some means at some point. This may not always mean some heavy trial like being burned at the stake, but it does mean trial. So notice what he says here. What, let me ask you this. What is patience? What is biblical patience? Biblical patience is nothing in the world but faith under fire. I don't need to be patient when everything's going fine. I need to be patient when everything's not going fine. I need to be patient when things are going backwards. That's when I need patience. And so patience, biblical patience, is just faith under fire. Jesus said, and I'm going to conclude here in just a moment. He said in the parable of the sower in Luke chapter 8, verse 13, that the seed once fell on the good ground. All of you are familiar with the parable of the sower? A sower went forth to sow. Some seed fell among stones. Some fell among thorny grounds. Some fell among the weeds. And some fell on good ground. One of the four fell on good ground. This is what Jesus said about that. He said, The seed which fell on the good ground are they which in an honest and good heart now, an honest and good heart can only be a heart that God has gotten a hold of. Listen to me now. Are you listening to me? Salvation does change my legal standing with God from condemnation to justification. That's my legal standing. I'm no longer condemned. Romans 8, 1, there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Okay? John chapter 3, verse 36. He that believes on him is not condemned, but he that believes not is condemned already because he's not believed in the name of the Son of God. So, I have a legal change from condemnation to justification. You follow me? But that's not all. I have a personal change. He doesn't just change my destiny. He changes me. Right? I'm going to applaud that myself. If I can't get you all to do it, I'll do it. I just applaud my own self. He changes your heart. He changes your mind. And if you haven't had a heart change and a mind change, you ain't saved. I don't care what you believe. You can be a scholar, you can be a lost scholar. A 12-year-old child can understand the gospel, and a Ph.D. man might die lost because he can't. He approaches it from a logical viewpoint rather than saying, Lord, I can't see anything, and 
I need for you to give me sight. Let me finish this, and I'm going to show you that passage if I don't forget it. The trial of your faith, he says in verse 7, is that Jesus might be praised, honored, and glorified by you as you trust him in, by, and through the trial, and then you will be praised when he comes. Verse 7, be found under the praise and honor and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ. That's the end of verse 7. Jesus said in verse 8, Paul said, Jesus speaking through him, that this is the foundation of faith that survives trial. It is. Verse 8, whom having not seen, you love. Though now you see him not, yet believing, you rejoice with joy unspeakable and full of glory. Now don't forget, these are people who are going through trial. He just told us that really in the first seven verses, but especially in verse 6. He said you got this heaviness through manifold, through various and sundry trials. But the foundation of all of this is verse 8. And it's, it's, ask, it's the answer of a simple question. Do you love the Lord Jesus? That's what he says. Having not seen your love, do you love him? Do you love him? Jesus said to Peter, if you love me, do you love me? He said, feed my sheep. What, is it, what does feed my sheep mean? It means be a witness for me. We're saved to witness for Christ by our lives. All of us are not talkers. You might think I am, but I'm not really. I talk a lot when I get up here to preach. But when I'm in a crowd, I say very little, very little. But if the Lord sends somebody my way, crosses my path, I begin to try to talk to him and try to witness to him. So don't feel bad if you hadn't knocked on every door in your neighborhood and told them about the Lord Jesus Christ. But if the Lord sends somebody your way, or if you pray, Lord, use me, and send somebody or send me to somebody, you will be able to give them some kind of a testimony about what the Lord has done for you. Now, Jesus said this, and we're going to have to stop. I'd like for you to turn. Uh, well, maybe we'll stay here for another minute or two. Then we'll go to the Gospel of John. Jesus said, herein is my Father glorified. John chapter 14, John chapter 15, verses 8 through 10. Herein is my Father glorified that you bear much fruit. And so shall you be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, I have loved you. Continue in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love as I have kept my Father's commandment and abide in his love. So we need to have a heart, Lord, what do you want me to do? I want to walk in a way that's pleasing to you. I want to be delivered from the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life. I want to be filled with the spirit of the Lord Jesus Christ. I want to be conformed into his image. I want to do his will. I want to be able to serve him all the days of my life. That should be your desire. Now, if you turn to the Gospel of John, we'll leave Peter for right now. We'll take Peter up the next time I talk to you. We're talking about suffering, and I've just shown you now the security, the security of your faith. It's reserved in heaven for you. You're kept by the power of God. Kept by the power of God. The Gospel of John, 
chapter 9. The Gospel of John, chapter 9. And I'm going to close with this. I hope you can follow me uh, and I don't distract you from what I've already said. I said that if you don't understand that you're a sinner and you're in constant need of His grace and mercy, then I doubt you've ever been saved. But I'm not your judge. I'm not your judge. There are two positions for every believer. One is uh, uh, every professing believer. Let me say that way. There, there are two positions that everybody who professes faith in Christ, they say, I'm a Christian. I've, I, I have trusted the Lord. There's two things. Either number one, they're wrong and they're lost. Or number two, they're out of fellowship. Now, I don't know how long the Lord lets you stay out of fellowship because he'll chasten you. The Scripture says that. Isn't that right? The Scripture, the scripture says that. So here's a man. Jesus has to show us that we're blind, so we ask him to give us sight. Here's a man in John 9 that was a blind man, and Jesus cured him of his blindness. And the man did not know. He told him he put, he put some clay on his eyes. Notice verse 6, John chapter 9, verse 6. When he had spoken, he spat on the ground. He made clay of the spittle. He anointed the eyes of the blind man with the clay, verse 7. And he said, go and wash in the pool of Siloam. And he went away his way, and he washed, and he came seeing. Now, what happened? He never saw what Jesus looked like. Okay? He was blind, and Jesus just talked to him, put that clay on his eyes, and said, go wash. And when he washed, his sight returned. That's what it says at the last phrase of verse 7. So then everybody began to ask him questions. His neighbors asked him in verse 8. Others said, verse 9, oh, I don't think that's him. I think that's somebody that looks like him. Uh, they kept asking him, how in the world, what happened? He said, a man called Jesus, verse 11, a man called Jesus, made some clay, and ordered my eyes, said, go wash. I washed, I went, I washed, and I received my sight. And they said, where is he? Verse 12. He said, well, I don't know. I couldn't see him. I was blind. So they brought him to the Pharisees. Now, why they did that, I don't know. The Pharisees are the critics of their day. Anything that's going on wrong, that's all they did was criticize. They brought him to the Pharisees. And the Pharisees, they started quizzing him. And to make matters worse, verse 14, it was a Sabbath day when Jesus made the clay. Oh, my goodness. You can't be healing people on the Sabbath day. No, 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 no. That's a no-no. What do you mean having that guy out there as a friend of yours who healed somebody on the Sabbath day? What do you mean doing that? The Pharisees asked him how he received his sight. Verse 15. He said, he put clay on my eyes and I washed and I see. Then some of the Pharisees said, verse 16, well, this fellow Jesus, he couldn't be any of God because he doesn't keep the Sabbath day. They asked the blind man, what do you say? Verse 17. He said, he's a prophet. He's a prophet. But the Jews did not believe, verse 18, that he had been born blind, and so they called his mom and dad. And verse 19, they said, is this your son? Was he born blind? How does he now see? His parents said, this is our son. He was born blind. How he sees, I don't know. Ask him. He's old enough to answer for himself. 
Okay? After all this happens, then Jesus comes back to the man and says to him, Do you believe on the Son of God? They heard verse 35. Go all the way down to verse 35. Jesus heard that they had cast him out. So you couldn't be in their local congregation, in their local synagogue, if you didn't dot every I and cross every T. So Jesus uh, heard that cast him out. See, the guy, the, the verses that I skipped, this guy said to those Pharisees, why do you keep asking questions about him? You want to be his disciples? You know what they said? They said, you're his disciples. We're Moses' disciples. You were all together born in sin, and you're trying to teach us. We're the THDs and the PhDs, man. You don't know anything. You blind whatever. And so Jesus comes to him and heard that they'd cast him out. And he said, do you believe on the Son of God? Verse 35. He said, who is he, Lord, that I might believe? Verse 37, Jesus said, you've seen him, and he's talking with you. Man, what a revelation. And Jesus, the man said, I believe, and he worshiped him. Now watch this. I've come all this way to show you this. Jesus said, I have come into the world, verse 39, to do two things. That they which see not might see and that they which see might be made blind. Now I'm going to ask you a question. Has the Lord ever shown you your blindness? If you've never seen your blindness, my friends, you, you don't know what it is to see. He said, I have come into the world to take people that can't see, give them sight. People that have never seen their blindness, I've, I've come to, to make them blind so they can see their blindness, that they might cry out to me to give them sight. Watch it now. Some of the Pharisees, verse 40, heard these words, and they said, are you saying we're blind? Look at the last part of verse 40. Are we blind also? Is that what you're saying? You're trying to imply we know, the middle, we, may, we know the middle verse in the Bible. We are Hebrew scholars. We are Greek scholars. We know verses that you've never heard of. You're trying to say we're blind. Jesus said if you were blind, you wouldn't have any sin, verse 41. But now you say we see, therefore your sin remains. My friends, you can never see unless he gives you sight. Your mother can't give it to you. Your brother can't give it to you. Your church can't give it to you. Walking an aisle won't give it to you. Getting baptized won't give it to you. Signing a card won't give it to you. There's nothing you can do to give yourself sight. Only the Lord can do that. And he gives sight to people who say, Lord, I'm blind. I'm lost. I am lost and I need to be saved. I'm lost and I need to be found. Have mercy on me, God. May the Lord add his blessings.